classes, except they keep going and going and going. Well, I remember one day, I think the bottom right picture is, it's not actual picture of where I live, but it's, it's, it's what I remember in my 50-year-old memory. So one day when I was uh, five years old, living in one of these row houses, I got a hold of a cardboard box, and from it I made a very cool house in my backyard, at least cool to a five-year-old. It was a simple, kind of flimsy little building, but I liked it and I enjoyed playing in it. And then one day, while I was playing in my cool house, the neighborhood kid named Billy McFarland came along. Now, Billy was not my favorite kid. He could be kind of obnoxious. He was a bully and a tease. Well, he came and he got in my pride and joy cardboard mansion. And I told him to be careful, but he wasn't. And he knocked it down while he was inside. And I was pretty upset. And I lost my temper. Billy was inside, and these, this now broken down house was covering him. He had, was covered in cardboard. And I could hear him inside laughing while I was outside yelling, no, no, get out, don't do that, that's my house. Well, he kept laughing, so I completely lost it. So I stepped on his face. <laughs> of course, he was inside the box, covered in cardboard, but I stepped on his face. It's not something I'm proud of, but it happened. Well, my mother heard the hollering and immediately came out and stopped me, and though I tried to tell her that I was provoked and it wasn't really my fault, I tried to tell her it was fair, I tried to tell her he deserved it, well, my mom wasn't having any of that. She took me inside my house and pulled down my pants and bent me over and proceeded to spank me. But what hurt worse than the spanking was what I saw as I was standing, bent over, being spanked by my mom, and I looked toward the front door where the screen door was open and watching and laughing was Billy McFarland. His face was intact. He was totally unbloodied and totally unrepentant. And he was very glad to see me getting spanked for stepping on his face. To throw more salt still in that wound, he was giggling at the scene. It's a very interesting memory that I have when I tell that story to my girls. They absolutely love that story. I've told it to them more times than I can count. Now, there's a reason I tell you this story, and it's because of what happened the following Lent. I was raised Catholic, and we marked Lent. That's the 40-day period between Ash Wednesday and Easter Sunday. It's a period of time that we were supposed to prepare our hearts for Good Friday and for Resurrection Sunday. It's supposed to be a period of prayer and fasting and spiritual preparation, and one of the ways we're instructed to focus our hearts on the deep meaning of this season is by giving up things. We were encouraged to give up things we liked, things like favorite foods and favorite activities, things like that. This was designed to teach us something about fasting and something about sacrifice. So this particular Lent, I remember my parents asking me, Billy, my name's Billy too, at least to them I was Billy, what are you going to give up for Lent? And I told them somewhat proudly, I'm giving up Billy McFarland. <laughs> now clearly, there were some things at age five that I didn't exactly understand about sacrifice. One of the things I obviously didn't understand that was giving up something you didn't like wasn't really a sacrifice. 
purpose. Because true sacrifice always costs something. Or by definition, it isn't a sacrifice. King David recognized that in a story from 1 Chronicles chapter 1, or I'm sorry, 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 24, when he wanted to buy some land to build an altar. The landowner offered it for free, but David refused this gift and insisted on paying full price. In verse 24, it says, I will not take for the Lord what is yours or sacrifice a burnt offering that costs me nothing. The word sacrifice implies giving something, something that costs the giver in terms of self or time or money or materials or possessions. So in my life today, the equivalent of giving up Billy McFarlane might be something like this. I'm going to give up eating liver. Well, I don't know about you, but I hate liver. I'm sorry, those of you who like liver. Or I could say to Barb, Barb, I'm going to make the ultimate sacrifice, and I'm going to let you mow the lawn instead of me when it's 105 degrees outside. Or I'm going to give up watching the Oprah show. Now, all these things are things I don't like anyway. So giving them up is no sacrifice. As Christians, sacrifice is supposed to be part and parcel of our daily existence. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 tells us, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love. And then it tells us how. Just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So Paul tells the Ephesians that perhaps the most significant component of what it means to walk in love, as he says in verse 2, is sacrifice. He uses Jesus here as the ultimate example or model for us in this. Jesus, Scripture tells us, gave himself up for us. He sacrificed himself to God for us. Now these verses are right in the middle of a longer passage about Christian behavior and about relationships between Christians. I've told more than one couple that was struggling in their marriage that the most significant relationship skill that we can learn is this, dying to self. Another way to say that might be living sacrificially, giving ourselves up for others in whatever relationship setting you're thinking about. Now saying that we need to give ourselves up for others as Jesus gave himself up for us is calling us to a pretty high standard of sacrifice. As I thought about sacrifice, I realized that there are basically three kinds of sacrifice. There's self-sacrifice that benefits us personally. There's the kind of sacrifice that helps or benefits other people. And there's the kind of sacrifice that advances God's kingdom. I also realize that these three are often interrelated. They're not mutually exclusive. You can see one or two or even sometimes all three happening at the same time. For example, we can often see that when a sacrifice benefits others, it advances God's kingdom as well. <clears throat> the reverse may be true. When a sacrifice advances or benefits the kingdom, it benefits others. Consider this perhaps familiar story from Christian history. Most of us have heard at one time or another about the Moravians. The Moravians were a people banished from their homeland, Bohemia, and exiled to various countries in 1620. Some came to Germany and found refuge on the estate of 
Count Nikolaus Ludwig von Zinzendorf. Now there's a mouthful, huh? It was on his estate that they became known as the Moravian Brethren. They were the forerunners of the Protestant missionary movement. In 1730, Count Zinzendorf told the Moravians about the urgent need for missionaries to evangelize the slaves on the Virgin Islands. And there was a man named Leonard Dobler who was there, Dober, D-O-B-E-R. He listened to Zinzendorf's appeal, and as he pondered God's calling, Dober felt excited about the opportunity to serve. But he also envisioned the severe persecution that he would endure by selling himself into slavery to evangelize these people. He anticipated the horrible working conditions, but above all, the degradation of slavery. But he thought no price is too high when Jesus endured persecution and died for him. So at the age of 18, Leonard Dober became the first Moravian missionary to the Virgin Islands sugar plantation slaves. However, the source of his persecution didn't come from the slave master's whip, but it came from fellow Christians. He found himself ridiculed and mocked and chastened for his decision to go to the Virgin Islands. The Christians asked him incredulous questions about how he planned to live in the Virgin Islands or how he intended to minister to the slaves. The persecution climaxed when the Christians discovered that Dober actually planned to sell himself into slavery. Well, that's a common myth that it actually happened that way because he didn't have to do that. There was a law that white people could not be slaves. So he arrived in the Virgin Islands in the late 1730s. He didn't have to become a plantation slave. Instead, he became a servant in the governor's house. But soon he resigned that position as he was concerned that this position was so superior to that of the slaves that it was detrimental to reaching them for Christ. He chose instead to live in a small mud hut where he could work one-on-one -on -one with the slaves. And in three years, his ministry grew to include 13,000 new converts. So even though he didn't have to literally pay that supreme sacrifice of selling himself into slavery, it's important to note that he was ready to do that. He was ready and willing to do that, to accept the persecution and maybe even martyrdom for these people just for the sake of advancing the gospel. His sacrifice did indeed advance the kingdom, and it clearly also benefited others. Often sacrifice that benefits us personally has benefits to others too. For example, if we work hard to earn a living for ourselves, our family benefits too, don't they? Sacrifice isn't something that comes naturally to any of us. It's something we're taught. It's something we learn. It's something we witness. We see it modeled, and we learn from this. For example, we teach our children that it's a good thing to sacrifice now so that we can derive more benefits later. Saving money is like this. But how many kids do you know that take to this immediately? If you have a kid that's earned $5, it burns a hole in their pockets, doesn't it? They'll go and they'd rather spend it on something impulsively rather than save it and earn more money and then maybe eventually get something they really want or maybe something they actually need. Of course, sometimes adults aren't much better. That's why credit cards are so often overspent or why people sometimes don't have anything for emergencies when they arise. It's the idea that you can have it now and deserve it now. But many, many adults do indeed, throughout the course of their life, learn 
the reality of this idea of sacrifice, even if it's primarily for eventual self-benefit. There's a book I read several years ago by a writer named Tim Stafford called Knowing the Face of God, and one of the chapters in this book is on sacrifice. I'll quote and reference some ideas from that chapter this morning. One of the things he writes is this, why does anyone get out of bed in the morning to go to work when it's so much more pleasant to lie drowsily under the warm covers? The force that gets me out of bed is hope. Today's me sacrifices for tomorrow's. Mature human beings know how to do this almost as second nature. We didn't get it from nature, though. Our parents and teachers drilled it into us just as we must drill it into our children. So sacrifice is a learned behavior, and it does not come naturally. If you think about it, our whole civilization is built on sacrifice. Think about this for a second. This kind of self-sacrifice, sometimes also known as delayed or deferred gratification, is the basis for civilization as we know it. Nobody would plant anything, nobody would build anything, learn anything, ever go to work, ever earn money, if they did not live at least in part by sacrifice. A society that's built on instant pleasure would soon be back in the Stone Ages, or there would be chaos, or both. Even your drive to church this morning required sacrifice. You did stop at that red light or stop sign, didn't you? Even though that's a sacrifice that's imposed on you, you gave up your right to go first, in this case, why? For the sake of order, for the sake of traffic flow. So even though much of this kind of sacrifice can be at least a little bit self-serving to some degree, it's still absolutely vital to our existence, of our civilization. But there is another reason why we so insistently teach sacrifice to our children, and it's not the future of civilization. It's because we care about their happiness. Even if they stood to inherit millions and would never need to work, we would want our children to learn to sacrifice because self-sacrifice is fundamental to knowing and being in a healthy relationship to ourselves. And I might add, it's fundamental to being in a healthy relationship with others and with God. Sacrifice is for something good. It's for something that outweighs the temporary pain or the inconvenience of the sacrifice. When we think about making a sacrifice, we usually weigh the present sacrifice that we're thinking about making against the expected benefits. And when we think about sacrifice like this, sometimes sacrifice really isn't extraordinary, is it? It's actually kind of ordinary daily behavior. It's the kind of behavior that we expect to see and to do ourselves. It's the kind of behavior we couldn't live without. And we certainly could not live as healthy, mature people in good relationship with ourselves or with others or with God without some clear sacrifices that we act out pretty much daily. But that just covers the kind of sacrifices that we make as part of our daily lives, the kind that we essentially do for our own benefit, whether we think of it that way or not, even if there are things in it that do, in fact, benefit others. Most of the time, when we think of that word sacrifice, we think of something done for the sake of others. And sometimes even this is nothing out of the ordinary. Perhaps the best example that I could think of 
is when a mother gives birth to a baby. Welcome, Brian and Sarah and Owen. Congratulations, by the way. So here's a perfect example. The mother's sacrificing her comfort. She's experiencing pain for a while for the joy of the new life that this sacrifice will bring. And that's so common that we don't even usually think of that as a sacrifice unless we see it in the light of what we've been examining today. Our everyday common understanding of the word sacrifice does indeed capture part of the biblical understanding of what sacrifice is. Now here's a dictionary definition of sacrifice. It's an offering of the life of a person or animal or an object in homage to a deity. Okay, that's how we think of Old Testament sacrifice. But secondly, it's a giving up or destroying of one thing for the sake of another of higher value. So back to our mother analogy, though we don't think of that as a sacrifice because it's so common, it's so ordinary, it does fit that second definition, doesn't it? A mother gives up comfort for at least nine months. She gives up lack of pain for perhaps several hours for the sake of gaining something of higher value. And of course, for parents in general, the sacrifice continues for a lifetime. Parents sacrifice many times daily for their children. And no one thinks that's a big deal. It's expected. It's part of the package. If you're going to be a parent, you're going to sacrifice. It's more unusual, it's more noteworthy when a parent doesn't make these kinds of sacrifices for their children. Then if their children are young, they might be arrested for neglect. And arrested or not, their kids do suffer when parents don't sacrifice for the sake of their children's well-being. Why is that? Why is it expected that parents sacrifice for their children? And nobody thinks this is particularly unusual or extraordinary. Well, at least in part, I think it's because this is true because sacrifice is normal when people love each other. Sacrifice is a normal thing when people love each other. When real love is involved, there's always some sort of sacrifice. Think about the hyperbole of lovers. We hear this in song. We hear it in poetry. People in love who poetically say things like, well, I'd swim the deepest ocean, right? I'd climb the highest mountain for you. So these kinds of things aren't necessarily reality. I don't know anybody that swam a full ocean because of the love of their life, but they do reflect the kinds of things that people feel when they're deeply in love. Stafford also writes, they sense correctly that sacrifice can bind them together, for it is the most tangible proof we have of human solidarity. One person gives up and the other gains, but there is a conservation of blessings. We do not lose by sacrificing because what is good for the person we love is also good for us. In a sense, it's just as selfish as sacrificing for ourselves. If we love people deeply enough, their benefits are ours. Some of you may have read the O. Henry story, Gift of the Magi. You remember that story? Many of you have read that. Without going through the whole story, let me tell you some of the basics. She has long, beautiful hair. He has this really cherished, very cool pocket watch. With Christmas coming, neither of them have any money. They both want to give each other a gift for Christmas. Secretly, they both make sacrifices so that they can please the other person. He sells his watch to buy combs for her hair. And she sells her long, beautiful hair to a wig maker 
so that she can buy him a watch fob. And of course, when they give their gifts to each other, at first glance, it looks like their sacrifices are totally in vain. But the story ends by saying that though it appeared that these two foolishly sacrificed for each other, the words in the story say they were the wisest. Why is that? Why were they the wisest? What O. Henry, the author of this story, means is that these two lost things, but what they gained is each other in a fuller, deeper way. What they lost in material, they gained in relationship. And they gained in relationship because of sacrifice. Their relationship gained immensely by the sacrifice. They didn't have the things anymore, but the relationship grew stronger. Sacrifice may be based on a hopeful calculation of costs and benefits, yet it provides a greater benefit merely by speaking the depth of its love. I like that phrase. That's what sacrifice does. Isn't that a great way to see sacrifice? It provides a greater benefit merely by speaking of the depth of its love. The more deeply we're connected with someone, the more we love someone, the less likely we are to see certain kinds of things as sacrifice. In other words, it's natural for us. It's expected, it's ordinary for us to give up one thing to get another for someone else's well-being, someone that we love deeply. You know, I think of what Jim and Diana Downing have done in raising their grandchildren. On the outside looking in, most of us would look at that and think that's a sacrifice. After all, they're parenting their grandkids with all that means in terms of commitment, of time, and resources. But I would guess that they don't think much or at all about the sacrificial element of this. Why? because they love their grandkids and they know that this is what's good for them, what's best for them. And that bond of love is their motivator for this sacrifice. Sacrifices are part of the makeup of any true close relationships. Sacrifices reveal that people who love each other see each other's benefits as their very own benefits. Because of that, it shouldn't really even be surprising that our faith is rooted and grounded in sacrifice. It all starts with Jesus' model of sacrifice for us. Remember the passage of Scripture we read earlier, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Let me read it again. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you, and gave himself up for us, an offering at a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. With all bonds of love, with all real relationships, and that would include our protective and maybe self-preserving love of ourselves, our love of each other, our relationship to each other, and our love for and relationship with God. With all these things, sacrifice is necessarily involved. But there's a key difference in the sacrifices we make for our own well-being and the sacrifices we make for others compared to the sacrifices that we make for God and for his kingdom. So think about this for a second. Loving sacrifice is normally reciprocal. It's not always, I realize that, but normally a loving sacrifice is reciprocal. One person sacrifices for another and at some other point that 
is reciprocal. It's vice versa. That's how Paul is instructing the Ephesians here to walk or live their lives. But think about this for a moment. With God, how can we possibly sacrifice for him? He doesn't truly need anything. He's God. Acts chapter 17, verses 24 and 25, says the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. So he gives. He provides everything. So God doesn't truly need in the way that you and I need. Psalm chapter 50, verse 12 echoes this idea. This is, this is God speaking through this. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. Why should he tell us he's hungry? He doesn't need us to feed him. He, he has it all. If God has no needs, what can we possibly have to give to him? How can we sacrifice for him? Yet, we see scripture where we are encouraged to sacrifice. We see Luke chapter 14, 27. Anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Well, carrying your cross means sacrifice. But the truth of it is, the sacrifice here, and probably in most other passages of Scripture, without being exhaustive in my search, I would guess that the sacrifice in Scripture is apparently for our benefit, not primarily for his. Our sacrifice for God may benefit his kingdom, yes, but it's for our good. Paul apparently considered sacrifice for the things of God a real bargain. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 7, beginning with verse 7, he writes, Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. So when you hear people making a big deal out of their sacrifices for God, you know one thing for sure. They do not understand their position in Christ. Our position in Christ is clearly one of absolute dependence. Our sacrifices to God, even though they're compelled and encouraged by Scripture, our sacrifices to God do not ever put him in a position of owing us anything or ever needing something from us. The most of us really hate being dependent, but we are dependent on God. So how can a dependent people sacrifice anything for God, and why should we, apart from the Back to the relationship between loving parents and dependent children to see the answer. Parents pour out their lives. They spend themselves financially and emotionally and spiritually. By the way, the phrase spent, when it implies pouring yourself out for something, has a very strong biblical basis, and it relates to the idea of sacrifice we're examining this morning. Philippians 2.17 is an example. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. The Greek word for offering here in this verse is spendo. 
and it means to pour out as a drink. And figuratively, it means to devote one's life or blood as a sacrifice, to spend, to be ready to be offered. So when parents spend themselves all for the well-being of their child, how does this compare to our relationship with our Heavenly Father? Well, parents sometimes derive their pleasure from their kids' pleasure simply because they are their children. However, this sometimes rather one-sided grace from parents toward children does not create of itself, in itself, a fully intimate two-person relationship. The truth is, we as parents sacrifice for our children, not just because it's the right thing to do, and certainly not at all hoping that they will pay us back with sacrifices of our own, but hoping that they will love us. Hoping that they will love us. Now, good parents, as does our Heavenly Father, love their children whether or not they love in return. But even if that's true of us, don't we still want their love? Don't we still want their love? Just because we're willing to give love unconditionally doesn't mean we don't want to see it reciprocated in some form. Parents find their best reward in children who want to see them, who want to be with them, who want to talk with them, who want a real relationship with them. Sacrifices that lead to that kind of love are worth it. But the sacrifice itself doesn't automatically bring this about. Our kids still have a choice. And if you think about it, we're in a similar position with Jesus. He spent his life for us. More than that, he literally poured out his blood for us. There's no way we can ever repay or match that sacrifice in any way, shape, or form. But this passage from Ephesians, and another passage I won't bother to read, you know it well from Romans 12:1, that calls us to be living sacrifices, we see the word does call us, encourage us to sacrifice. But God doesn't need my sacrifice or my offerings, but I believe he does want them. I believe he does want them. Why? Because our sacrificial obedience reveals our love for him. My sacrifices don't repay God for anything. They thank him. They may illustrate my love for him. They may show my gratitude for his love and his mercy. So even though we live in a relationship of one-sided, total dependence on God, our sacrifices, whether they're for others or expressly for the kingdom of God, do mean something to God when they represent gratitude and thanks and genuine love. Our sacrifices please God when they represent our hearts. Our sacrifices offer symbolically the one thing God wants from his one great sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. He wants us. He wants us. He wants not just part of us, but he wants our whole hearts completely devoted to him, and that ultimately brings glory to God the Father. i close with one more quote. Jesus, looking toward death, could see his sacrifice as a basis for relating to me. We know it was difficult for him that he sweat blood, but why did he go through it? For the joy set before him. He endured the cross, scorning its shame. But what joy? A part of the joy was the same kind of joy I look for when I sacrifice for my children and friends 
I want to be one with them. I want to be one with them. So God doesn't need anything, but he does want us to spend eternity with him. That's the joy set before him. Our redemption, our salvation, our ability to have a genuine relationship with him. And for that, he sacrificed and gave us the model of sacrifice. And for that, we are grateful. Amen? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the model of our Lord and Savior. And Father, we thank you for your word's admonition that as we walk in love, we do indeed walk in sacrifice. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to see sacrifice in this way. Help us to see sacrifice by the power of your Holy Spirit, Father. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for your ultimate sacrifice for us and pray that you would indeed help us to live sacrificial lives, sacrificial toward each other and sacrificial toward you to advance your kingdom and reveal our love for you. In Jesus' name, amen.